All right. Oh my God, we're back again. We're back again. This is Mushadov Zadi welcoming you. Welcoming you. I've forgotten how to talk. Welcoming you back to uh, how to Pakistan. Um, and this is Fasi Zaka. We've been away a long time, and as usual, it takes so much energy to make these podcasts. We put in so much. Uh, this is planning. This is the like, underhand. This is the underhanded. It takes so much energy because I have yeah. to sit with Musharraf Zaidi, and it's just yeah. it's so it's so terrible for you. It takes uh, a it lot takes out of us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've been away on uh, uh, for the summer. Uh, yes. we took a Ramadan break, yes. uh, or as you might like to call it, a Ramzan break. Ramzan break. Yeah, yes. is that how it's? How, what's the Pashto pronunciation? Ramzan. So you guys just. Allowed this well, actually, culture we, we to be appropriated no, by the actually, by the Farsis. Actually, we call it Roje. Roje. Yeah. This is like. Is this what you were? Roja is one fast. Roje is the period. Th- is this you trying to be Bangladeshi or whatever, like with the Zs and the Js, or no, how no, did no, this no. happen? This is. Um, <laughs> I actually have no idea how it happened, but this is exactly how we do it. You know. So, uh, but. Ramzan has creeped in also into Pashto. Sure, of course yeah. it would. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Urdu-Punjabi sort of, you know, nexus creeps into everything. Uh, I think it's done on purpose. Allahu Akbar. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, we're really excited uh, today. Uh, I, I think I am. I, I don't, Fussy? I'm very excited. Uh, super excited. Yes. Uh, to welcome Andrew Small, who is, uh, as some of our listeners would know, and others won't, but Andrew is at the German Marshall Fund in the United States. Uh, He spent uh, a fair bit of time in Brussels, uh, and now he's the Transatlantic Fellow uh, for that organization. So his job is to look at global issues broadly that affect the transatlantic political world, that is the United States, Great Britain, uh, and the other sort of old Europe allies uh, aligned with NATO. Um, uh, I've known Andrew for a good three and a half, maybe four four years yeah, now. Uh, we've been attending conferences uh, at the same place. And one of the reasons I thought he'd be a fantastic guest is because he's the author of uh, the Pakistan-China Axis, which uh, to, to me uh, and for me is, is really one of the definitive guides uh, it's certainly a Western uh, perspective of the Pakistan-China relationship, but it uh, it's the perspective or the book or the narrative that I think is going to shape the thinking, uh, at least in D.C. and London, for a long time to come. So I think it's an incredibly important book, and he's an incredibly important thinker. Uh, we're delighted to have you with us today, Andrew. Thank you, and delighted to be able to join your podcast. You're, you're very, very polite, and it's going to be tough because Fussy has this habit of interrupting our guests. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I have to say I'm really happy you used the word access correctly. Ever since Bush, it's always been a three-point thing. <laughs> Did you consider putting in someone else? I'm reclaiming the word access. <laughs> you're reclaiming the word access <laughs> for English. And, and since you also work at the German Marshall Fund, what chance do we have of getting a Marshall Fund above $45 billion? Because that's the bar right now. It's going to, if, if we trust uh, <laughs> some of your politicians, the number is even higher than $46 billion by now. Uh, I think you'll see a good amount of it. A good amount of it, all right. Um, so anyhow, one of the things that I thought I'd just open up by asking, and this is interesting, is that, you know, in a lot of conversations we keep getting, is the, the, there's a 
huge interest for Pakistan to do a China pivot, and partly they base it, I mean, forget about the US, India, or whatever, but also just on the basis of how optimistic the predictions are for it being the premier world power. And, you know, there are things also like its aging population. It's also got a growth problem and all that. So how likely is that? So, I mean, the sort of collapsist theorists on this, who every time something is looking a bit dicey for the Chinese economy, um, start to predict that the whole thing's going to run into the ground. Um, In fact, already the size of the Chinese economy means that um, unless you were to have uh, some absolutely catastrophic political um, event in the country, if it can sustain growth rates even at 4 or 5%, it's still going to rise over the next period of time to be the largest economy in in the world. It's going to be very difficult to derail that. Um, You're still, I mean, there are all of these long-term problems that are there. There is an aging population. There are all sorts of demographic, um, uh, really acute demographic problems that are going to be kicking in uh, at an even earlier stage because of the one-child policy. Um, You have all of the environmental problems. There's a lot of long-term risk elements, um, but... uh, Nonetheless, you're still within uh, 10 years, 15 years. Um, it's very hard not to see a scenario in which China is at least the number one economic power. And if its military, uh, if growth in its military budgets matches that over the next period of time, then over a longer arc, um, then you would expect to see it as, as the top military spender as well. I think one of the, one of the you know, before we, we started recording, we were talking about this. Um, I'm kind of... I, I'm delighted about CPEC. I, I think I love infrastructure. Period. Anyway, I'm a huge. I'm a big. Uh, like I'm an infrastructure development guy. I like infrastructure. I think it. I think that's how you know economies and countries get built up. Um, and it's easy to get sucked into just talking about CPEC with somebody like you. You know, whereas I feel like one of the missing tricks in the Pakistani discourse actually is that we talk about CPEC from a CPEC sort of angle as a, as opposed to trying to understand CPEC in the broader perspective of, you know, China as a country and, and what, what it stands for and what it represents. And I think that's where we've started off. Mm-hmm. So I would love for us to kind of pledge not to mention CPEC, you know, f- for the duration of this conversation, because I think we can understand CPEC much better if we try and understand China. Um, and, and for me, the starting point of that is I know, like, I know what, where the South China Sea is, it's close to South China, I think, right? <laughs> and and I know that, like, if you're pro-America and all the good countries, then you don't want China too much in the South China Sea. But if you're not pro-America, then you want China to own the South China Sea. Can you give us something that's slightly more sophisticated than that. Uh, just what is the problem in, in, in the South China Sea and what, what, what's going on? Uh, the problem in the South China Sea is there have been these long-term disputes between various uh, claimants to uh, features. Uh, there's, there's a number of other Southeast Asian countries that are claimants as well as um, uh, China. Uh, there have been a substantial period of time in which the various sides had effectively agreed to park um, uh, these these maritime claims. Um, In the last few years, there's been um, a very significant escalation of activities um, on China's part. Um, 
to a lesser extent from some of the other climate countries like the Vietnamese um, and, and others in terms of, for instance, um, drilling, uh, undersea drilling and, and, and things like this. But how did, how did so, so you're saying that like China claims parts of the South China Sea or all of it and other countries claim various parts of it. Is that, is that right? Yeah, there's a, there's a number of claimants to various features. Um, there, was a, there was a point at which they discovered that there were substantial uh, undersea resources, um, but in one sense, the, the resource element is not the central thing. Um, the South China Sea has really become a kind of testing ground for China to prove itself as a, as a great power and to prove that it can get uh, certain things that um, it hadn't been able to get in, in the past and, and test out um, its position vis-a-vis -vis various other countries um, in in the region, um, and and particularly test itself out vis-a-vis -vis the United States. Um, and this it's is made interesting. Substantially more expansive claims than it had uh, in the past. I mean, you you may have heard about the Nine Dash Line, for instance, which was virtually um, an arc of claims that pretty much suggested that China did, as you. Uh, suggested in the introduction, lay claim to virtually the entire South China um, Sea. Um, so there's, there's, and you've also had this definition on China's part of the South China Sea as becoming part of its core interests. Yeah. Um, core interests is a term that you'd, you'd heard as a somewhat newer term, typically used to refer to some quite traditional, more sort of internal um, issues, the Communist Party's role, Taiwan, these sorts of things. And then you started getting South China Sea being introduced. So South China Sea is like the Kashmir of China and all these other countries. Is that it, it hasn't had this status until recently. This is why uh, the, the South China Sea, until a few years ago, specialists knew about this. Yeah. Um, the, the issues were long-standing, um, but there hadn't been this kind of escalation that you've seen. In the so basically, period, are you saying that China and a bunch of other countries had agreed to kind of park this issue whilst they got down to the business of building roads and highways and power plants so that they could fuel like a well, first a manufacturing and export-oriented base, and, and now, I guess, under Xi, it's looking more and more like domestic consumption is going to be a big part of the way they move forward. Well, I mean, you have to go back to, to Deng Xiaoping, really, on this, okay. um, where you have an entire strategy on China's part that is about minimizing um, its um, external risk factors and smoothing relations with with neighbors. And of course, he wasn't averse to uh, taking some um, fairly tough actions um, when, when needed, but particularly on territorial claims and this, this sort of thing. Um, the aim was really to uh, park these issues um, and focus on internal development and create an external environment that was conducive to China's economic growth. Um, what you've seen in the last period of time is a rebalancing really away from, from that in terms of China's priorities. Um, the sense is, yes, economic growth is, is, is still um, essential, um, but China's a much more substantial power now, um, and you, particularly since 2008, particularly since the financial crisis, um, well, there was a real sense that um, uh, the, the U.S. had been hobbled, um, that China was starting to take its rightful place um, as, as the, the, the new superpower as well, um, that China should really be getting more for its new power position. Um, and in, in this period of time, economic considerations, um, uh, when it's come to dealings with neighbors and, and otherwise, um, have been uh, have, have weighed less heavily. There's been more of a willingness to push hard on territorial claims, push hard in relations with um, uh, neighbors on various disputes than, than, than was the case under Deng Xiaoping. And that's been particularly under Xi Jinping. Yeah. And the pressures on this have really been building for a while within, yeah. within the system even before that. Yeah. I mean, one thing that fascinates me about uh, there's so many different permutations and, and sort of implications of all this. 
Uh, the easiest one is, of course, that if you you have to build up internally first. So this idea that Deng had basically said, "Listen, guys, we have all these problems externally, but we're not gonna we're not gonna mess around. We're not gonna poke. We're not gonna poke around with them. We'll let them lie dormant until until we have enough muscle to take on whoever you know all takers basically." But it's interesting among the takers. You just mentioned Vietnam, and I know that there's like a problem with the South China Sea in Vietnam. And I find it fascinating because, you know, kind of in the conventional thinking, Vietnam is supposed to have been like a satellite of, of, of China, like a mostly communistic sort of socialistic sort of uh, regime, uh, high, heavily dependent on, on China. So what's all this about the South China Sea? Like, what's going on there? What, what happened to Vietnam? So, I mean, v- Vietnam, yes, there's a level of economic dependency that's the, that's grown up with China. There is this affinity, one of the only other um, communist systems in the world. So, um, in, in one sense, the two sides have been quite um, close. But historically, the two, uh, China and Vietnam, have been huge rivals. Um, I mean, of course, not at, at, at parity with each other, but um, the legacy of the relationship going back centuries between the two sides is one in which the Vietnamese um, see China as the kind of big bullying country in its neighborhood. Um, and so, uh, again, although the South China Sea, um, uh, the Spratly Islands in, in, in this particular case, may be the proximate source of um, the, the, the conflict and, and confrontation, um, particularly in, in the last period of time when China moved on oil rig into disputed waters, much to the surprise of the uh, the, the Vietnamese. Um, this is really, uh, th- these, these are conflicts and disputes that have real historical depth to them um, in East Asia. Um, and as, as much of it is around a kind of reapportioning of the power positions of the various countries in the region, China vis-a-vis Japan and what's at stake there, um, China vis-a-vis various of its um, uh, Southeast Asian neighbors, and sort of re-establishing a kind of hegemonic um, position of the sort that it occupied further back during um, during previous um, dynastic periods in which China was the preeminent um, power. And of course, a degree of resistance from some the countries in the region to uh, China having that degree of um, uh, control, control and yeah. influence over over their fates, and so that's what a lot of the tensions um, are actually. The South China Sea is a kind of uh, proxy for some of these broader questions. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I have just a question which is totally in a different area, but we could come back to what we're discussing now. You know, China is a superpower. I mean, one of the things about the United States that it's also got this massive cultural cachet. It's putting out all this product. It's well known, understood. You know, there's there's a way that you can even have a hatred of the U.S. as a power and a love for certain parts of its culture. I'm just wondering, in you know, this whole expansion culturally, um, how is China, you know, seeking to address that part? Given that there's such a big barrier when it comes to language. I mean, it's already doing it in terms of its buying power. Like, you see a lot of films, and they excise negative char- uh, Chinese portrayals now because China is a really big market for a film that can bomb in the U.S. Yes. and still be significantly successful because just of China and a few other countries. So I'm just wondering, how, how is it addressing that part, like taking its culture, making it more... Because it seems uh, uh, that uh, it's... You know, still a bit mysterious, still a bit not as accessible. I mean, this, this, it, how mysterious and how accessible China is, I think, depends on uh, where you're sitting. I mean, I, I think in East Asia, you have 
significant residue of Chinese cultural influence, whether it's Korea, Vietnam, uh, the kind of uh, and and the Southeast Asian neighbors as well. There've been countries that have been within the sort of cultural ambit of, of China's for some time. The Confucian influence, um, language influence, um, uh, all of these sorts of things. So there's some countries where there's a level of familiarity with. Um, uh, with with China, and then there's other parts of the world where China is a substantially more alien um, uh, kind of entity, um, and there've been state-directed efforts at trying to address the sort of China as um, as as a sort of uh, China's soft power weaknesses, which mm. um, uh, which I think it, it it's quite acutely conscious of. Um, so there's been uh, large sums of money spent on. Uh, their broadcast television, radio, CCTVs, external presence, and these. We have radio in Pakistan that does China Radio yeah. International. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, there are. There've been the, there've been attempts to through the Confucian <coughs> Institutes to. Um, uh, I mean, a lot of that's language teaching and and, and things like this. Um, more recently, you alluded to the the Hollywood um, yeah. uh, side of things, where the 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 influence is really the. the the money is the, the, the draw. There's a lot of people, of course, adjusting around China as a market. And they've been buying, they've been looking at buying up certain Hollywood studios, actually, um, as well, financing some of these um, pictures. I, I, I mean, the problem with some of the state-directed stuff is that it's quite ineffective. Um, it's it's not at all clear that, that many of these efforts have really uh, translated effectively um, into any shifts in perception of, of, of China. Um, and, of I mean, China has issues that relate specifically to its political structure as much as anything else. It's still going to be um, uh, seen by many through the prism of the Communist Party, Tiananmen Square, all of these sorts of... Well, and uh, also just a fundamental lack of freedom as compared to sort of, you know, the global narrative about how societies should be, right? Right. And so it's it, it's hard to get um, traction simply by pushing out state-directed um, propagandistic um, materials on that, no matter how much money is, um, is spent. And if you look at polling on China over the last... Um, uh, 10, 20 years around the world. Um, it's there are exceptions. Pakistan is, of course, one of the um, exceptions to uh, to this in its numbers. But China's uh, uh, approval ratings and things have tended to be uh, dipping over time. I think um, the, the 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 challenge China's facing is that there isn't a huge amount of. Uh, enthusiasm and excitement about China's rise as a global power at this stage. I, I, it's interesting. I mean, there's two questions that come out of that. Uh, one is, and and I'll frame them both, and then sort of, you know, and also get sort of your take, Fussy, on this because I, you know, we we talk about media and and uh, influence in the media all the time. As much as there was a state-led effort in China, you know, the really influential actors in the media in China are actually not the state. I mean, it's Jack Ma and it's, it's the entrepreneurs like mm. that, that are, that are really, that are market makers when it comes to the media. Now, the question I have is, what is the, relatively speaking, like when I look at the Indian market makers, right, they, they are champions of whoever's in power. Uh, you know, the Indian state narrative and the Indian private sector narrative are pretty much sort of, you know, intertwined. So, you know, the Ambani group and the channels that it owns will cheerlead, you know, for the for the most part, whoever's in power, particularly these days, given that it's a pro-business sort of right of center at a minimum uh, sort of dispensation. Uh, do Chinese entrepreneurs and, and, and market makers in, in the media in particular, are they also sort of, you know, state leaning? Are they whoever, like, is, is President Xi sort of, you know, uh, you know, 
the one, the answer to everything? Or is, is dissent going to be a bigger feature of what happens in, within the Chinese mass media? Um, if anything, there's been more of a squeeze on on these issues under under Xi Jinping. Um, I think there was there was a sense that um, uh, although there were significant limitations on the on the capacity for um, uh, self expression through um, uh, through social media and a number of these um, other outlets, um, there was still a degree of license. I think that license for um, for, for a lot of figures, media. Um, business and otherwise has, has, has been uh, tightened up yeah. further um, under Xi Jinping. So there's <clears throat> not really a huge amount of autonomous space for, for any of these entities. It's not necessarily that they have to spend their time acting as, as cheerleaders, but they, they at least have to make sure that they're, they're not crossing they don't step out of line. On, on, on these yeah. things. Um, and uh, if anything, again, under, under Xi Jinping, because I mean, there's a huge state industrial um, uh, infrastructure that's there on the Chinese uh, on the Chinese side, lots of the biggest Chinese companies in the world are still state-owned enterprises, yeah. um, but a lot of the big private companies, Alibaba, and, and uh, as you were as you were mentioning, um, uh, a number of these uh, companies. Uh, there's more of an effort, um, not by the Chinese state as, as as much as the Chinese Communist Party, to sort of uh, deepen influence, and that's really been a large part of what Xi Jinping's agenda is is about. It's kind of re-establishing the Chinese Communist Party um, at the center of Chinese life, and that includes business. Life. So I, I have a related question to this, and I just think that when you look at the Chinese Communist Party, and in some ways it's been, you know, magnificently far-sighted. It's been open to questioning its own ideology and you know things for real politics. How strong is it now? And given let's say increasing uh, affluence and you know more desire amongst the people, like where does that stand? And where does you know a desire for less control um, and how it influences the party and what may happen in the future. So, I mean, this is, it's been this very interesting juncture because um, you you had a period of time, you had a succession of leaders after Deng Xiaoping um, where you were essentially saying the central leadership is growing weaker over time. Um, the, uh, the power of the Communist Party, even though it's so centrally in uh, bound up in almost every aspect of, um, of, of of the state and 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 many aspects of, of, of Chinese life. Uh, there's more spaces opening up for for others, and the central capacity to direct China's future um, is 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 diminishing, and the central leadership is growing growing weaker. Um, that's really been what Xi Jinping has set out to uh, reverse, um, and. Uh, you've, you, you have, for the first time, people talking about the most powerful Chinese leader. Initially, they were talking about since Deng Xiaoping, um, even now saying the most powerful Chinese leader since Mao. Um, and there's been uh, more of a, um, uh, an, 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 uh, a consolidation of power at the center around a particular individual, as, as was the case further back in the time in, uh, in the Chinese Communist Party's uh, rule, um, uh, more having to be uh, almost everything having to be channeled back through the party um, and the party leadership and Xi Jinping as general secretary and, and president rather than the state structures. Um, but of course, when you've opened up the, the, these spaces for people, there's a degree of chafing um, against the fact that um, they're, they're now being taken away. Because but, actually the Chinese people have seen a substantial advance in freedom over over time as their economic 
well-being has grown. You know, people have passports can travel overseas. Um, people have new uh, capacities to express themselves, at least um, uh, online and through various other forms. And now some of these spaces uh, are, are being tightened up. And there is there is a question about whether, whether uh, the degree to which uh, there's, there's a collision between the rising middle class, young people that have been used to uh, certain uh, capacities and, and outlets and, and and the new sort of slightly retro efforts to put an institution that not very many people, despite its success as a sort of governing entity, at least in the last period of time, um, not not very many people really see as relevant to their lives. I, I, you mind if I challenge you a little bit on this? Because when I look at Premier Lee and, and the visibility afforded to, to this leader and the also, just having had the privilege of, of, of hearing him speak at length, you know, about sort of the economic vision in particular, I got a sense that that position hadn't been as prominent in recent years as it is now under, under Premier Lee. Even at ASEAN, it's, it's really Lee that, you know, I, I mean, the pictures that I see. Now, this might be just a bias, uh, you know, of being Pakistani and, you know, wanting to defend our Chinese brothers and sisters, but, but, but tell me, I mean, what is your take on Premier Lee? I, 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 I found him to be incredibly visible. And if, if Xi was as, if President Xi was as kind of dominant, um, I guess the closest parallel for me contemporaneously would be Abdullah Gul and, and Erdogan. And, and clearly they're, you know, there's only one Erdogan, right? But, but it's, not to suggest that there's a competition. Uh, Lee works for Xi. There's no doubt in my mind. But I'm just saying, would a would a would a leader that's supposedly as strong as Deng or Mao uh, cultivate Lee in the way that it seems that President Xi is cultivating uh, Premier Lee? They talk about um, in Zhongnanhai, the the central leadership compound um, uh, in in Beijing. They talk about the South having taken over the North. That is the party offices having taken over the state offices. Um, the state council, um, the, the kind of cabinet that was would be run by, by the prime minister, the, the premier in, in, in China, um, was, was formerly really where a lot of economic decisions were, were, were being taken. Um, Wen Jiabao was a very strong prime minister. Um, Zhu Rongji was an extremely strong prime minister. Um, at the moment, you still have a lot of critical economic decisions being taken um, now by advisors to Xi Jinping um, rather than um, by, by Li Keqiang. Now, there's, there's still important structures uh, that Li administers, there's certain um, uh, roles that he he, he plays that the, hasn't been um, a, a total subversion of the structures that were there before. Um, but he's a weaker figure. The the Youth League, the, the, the which was previously the, the faction that he came from, the um, Hu Jintao and, yeah. and Wen Jiabao yeah, yeah, before yeah, yeah. Were, yeah. Were, were from us as well, um, has been extremely weakened. Um, most of the kind of power decisions at the centre are now really being taken um, uh, by by Xi Jinping, not in, not by way of a sort of trade off of. Um, roles and um, uh, uh, some degree of bargaining with with other power groups. Um, they've they've really already consolidated um, uh, the, the the power to do these things without reference to uh, Lee and some of the others coming through that faction. There has even been talk that Li Keqiang could uh, could could be forced out um, uh, the next party congress, which which takes place uh, next year, which is when the the central leadership the positions are yeah, rotated. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, he's he's. Uh, and that's a biannual event. 
Uh, that takes place every five years. Every five years, yeah. okay. Um, so that this is when you'll start to see, uh, in theory, the potential successors to, to Xi Jinping um, put in place. Um, the, the, the Politburo Standing Committee will be, will be rotated, um, although it's also possible. I mean, there's, there's a lot of talk about whether Xi Jinping will even come up with ways to extend his uh, position. Normally, it would be two five-year cycles. Let's talk about whether he'll find ways to... Uh, three. To, to go even beyond that, yeah, um, so yeah. um, it's. Uh, but this this is the kind of big interim juncture on um, uh, in Chinese politics where uh, the next generation is supposed to be yeah. put in place. I mean, I, it, it's interesting. That this might be the you know the you talked about some you know retro. I mean, one retro sort of trend seems to be these strongmen, right? That mm. you know in in these big countries. Fussy, just again. Just to follow up to the earlier conversation about influencers and, 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 you know, how the economy works and cultural. I mean, the question comes really out of that cultural question. As much as China wants to reach out, there's also uh, culture isn't static and it doesn't just go one way. And over the last decade or so, you've seen U.S. and American culture in particular make deep, deep inroads into into sort of mainland China in a way that was inconceivable even 15 years ago. So I'm thinking about the NBA, right? The fact that there was a, a player named Yao hmm. and, and, uh, and, and the consumption of NBA paraphernalia in China has just gone through the roof over the, hmm. over the last five or six years. Um, the KHL, which is the Continental Hockey League, which is the European or the Russian version of the NHL, the National Hockey League, they just ha- you know introduced their first Chinese team um, you know, uh, selling out stadiums and, you know, doing well, um, you know, baseball is bigger uh, through the Olympics. You know, people say, well, China trying to win all these goals and becoming like an Olympic power. Yes, that's one side of the story. The other side of the story is China needing to and wanting to be part of this global narrative, uh, you know, as, as a manifestation of its aspiration. I, I just wonder, when you combine this with the desire, uh, kind of the new economic or the transition economic model of going from sort of hardcore export-oriented to, you know, a consumption-oriented uh, economy, you're going to have all these middle-class consumers in China, many of whom are going to be consuming American products. A lot of strategy types, like maybe yourself and me, you know, we think about the South China Sea and Kashmir and, you know, waterways and, and those kinds of, those contests. But isn't there an element of inevitability of mutual interdependence that we're seeing being built up over the last decade that'll continue to be built up at pace, especially if China keeps growing, even at a moderate pace, because all these new middle-class Chinese are going to want to buy a a jersey of a Houston Rockets player? And isn't that in and of itself kind kind of a guarantor against things becoming completely... At least partly a guarantor, or is that too sort of whimsical on my part? Well, I mean, two two things. First of all, um, there is very little doubt that the level of nationalism among this group has risen substantially. If you look at, and even more so, um, the people, the the, the one child generation that have been coming through, people that have gone through the education system in the nineties, in particular, when a lot of the nationalist education um, started intensifying. Um, there's a lot of people coming through uh, with more of a narrative of. Uh, victimhood on China's part and these sorts of things than was the case 
uh, further back. I mean, the first phase that you've got the big influx of external influences in the in the 80s, um, you didn't have these sorts of attitudes. You had a much more that there was much more of a sense of a, a set of uh, the trajectory of, of the country uh, moving politically and culturally and in in, in other ways um, while retaining the, you know, the 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 very strong cultural identity um, that is there, but a bit more of a sense of of, of conversion with um, with with the West. Um, uh, in the last period of, of time, I think there's been on almost all facets, um, even going back to international relations or um, economics, um, there's a sense that there needs to be a kind of Chinese-specific story, draw back on Chinese history, um, draw back on Chinese intellectual traditions, um, and that's at the sort of elite level, at a, at a, at a public level. Uh, these sorts of, I mean, this is why South China Sea, South Tibet, um, sure. a term, you know, that, that actually just came up from the internet, um, really, in, in the last period of time, um, uh, uh, in, in, in the border um, uh, contest with, with, with India. Um, you, a lot more of these, um, the, these dynamics have been the last 10, 15 years, um, where I actually previously, uh, this this was not as deeply rooted. Okay. The Japan case is, is, is one of the most obvious ones, where actually you had a very high level of pragmatism um, on the part of, of, of Chinese leaders, um, and actually public opinion on, on some of these issues didn't look anything like what it looks um, today on, on, on Japan. Now, if anything, uh, the Chinese leaders are much more bound in by uh, the, the, the pressures of nationalistic public opinion when it comes to um, relations with, with Japan, say. Um, and actually on the economic side as well, um, previously I, I think the, there was a sense in which um, actually the the level of interdependence um, uh, was, uh, was was such. I mean, China is deeply, deeply integrated, far more so than, uh, I mean, if you were to go further back in time, the Soviet Union or something like that, China so deeply integrated into the world economy and, and, and trade and things. Um, but actually, because of the position that China uh, has in this, um, uh, as it's become... Uh, as as there's become more of a perception of other countries' neighbours being more dominant on China, uh, more dependent on China, um, for instance, there's been a sense that this economic position is one that China should be able to use to its advantage. There's been more um, willingness in the last period of time to uh, impose sanctions, cut off particular access to particular products. In you know the dispute with the Philippines, they cut off rare earths with uh, in their in their trade with the the, the Japanese. Um, so some of these interdependencies on the economic side Side, um, uh, have actually been uh, slightly more weaponized than, than, than they were in the past. Um, so, I mean, of, of course, uh, trade inter- interdependency can, can also turn into a source of uh, tension and escalation um, in, in some of these cases, um, too. There's still a much higher level of caution um, on China's part than you see with, say, Putin's Russia or something like this. So, um, I guess, but, I mean, the question is, like, Chinese millennials, right? Like, mm. there are... Are you saying they're as invested in this kind of jingo? You haven't used the word jingoistic, but, you know, I'll use it. Uh, I mean, is there, like, is the Chinese millennial more invested in in Chinese jingoism, if you will, uh, than... Because there's also a global trend towards that, right? I mean, you look at India, it's like, you know, there's 80-plus percent approval ratings for Prime Minister Modi, which is remarkable in this era. Erdogan keeps going from strength to strength. So, uh, you know, uh, we don't want to... I wanna... just want to add a supplement to your hmm. question also. Is the nascent nationalism, is it a function of affluence? Is it something, is it a sort of, you know, a Chinese national project? Or is it something... A bit more organic. What explains this? 
So, I mean, I, I think you have you have a few different um, strands to it. I mean, first of all, the younger generation, the millennials, um, have, have gone through a period um, of relatively lacking in economic hardship or political turmoil. Um, the older generations were much more cautious, having gone through the Cultural Revolution, the Great Leap Forward, um, very, very difficult economic um, periods. Uh, the, the, the younger generations that are coming through now have known nothing but a rising China, um, uh, relatively comfortable conditions. Um, and, and so this is, this is the group that is... Uh, is, is much more indifferent, for instance, I mean, you can also look at some of the polling on uh, uh, attitudes towards war or something like that, um, much less caution among the younger groups, much more willingness to you know, accept the idea and enthusiasm even in some parts for war with Japan or, or something like this, you, you, which, which you just didn't have with, with some of the older generations that were, were really focused on building China up in, in, internally. And the, the Deng Xiaoping... Uh, entire strategy was actually at a deep national consensus really behind the need to do that after such a long period of internal um, turmoil. But as China's emerged um, from this, uh, even some of the older groups as well, there, there, there is a sense that uh, China's arrived in the world, that um, it... Uh, that also that some of the uh, the other powers, particularly the United States, um, have not necessarily been entirely effective uh, across all series of areas. I mean, this is why the financial crisis was was such a, uh, a paradigm shift for them because Chinese economists, um, the Chinese elites, had still kind of looked to the U.S. as the grown-ups in running these sorts of things. Um, I think the financial crisis was the point at which that was definitively shattered. Um, uh, and you have uh, certainly in, uh, uh, even among elites. So, so basically, you looked at the Americans and said, "Oh, wow, <laughs> we can't trust these idiots with the with the world economy, and indeed with our economy, essentially, yes. right?" Um, and and so there's there's more. We we should find ways to to to, to run the show um, ourselves in much more important ways. It's not ultimately that we're going to converge towards um, becoming uh, the 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 same as the kind of um, existing uh, global powers and, and past global powers. We have to do this differently, um, uh, and I, I, you, you. So you have this at an elite level. Uh, uh, I mean, to, 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 to your question about the, the forces feeding into it, some of it has become uh, has been through affluence. Some of it has just been the realities of China's power position, and some of it has been um, a sustained education process that has been put in place by the. Um, Communist Party, particularly after Tiananmen Square, um, to find ways to ensure that the party's position was was legitimised, um, and and a lot of that narrative um, comes down to the the the, the party's role in uh, addressing China's century of humiliation um, and all of these sorts of issues, which are, so it's it's become quite a grievance centric nationalism of a sort that wasn't really there um, to the same extent. Before. And so now this this expression and uh, you know this kind of expansion of expression of national power. I mean, one example is the sort of the work on the Remnibi, like the fact that they want this currency to be a more uh, a more important informant of uh, the way the world works. Like, uh, you know, what, what what is, are the roots of that project in the financial crisis or does it go, does it go further back than that? I mean, I, I think China's seen the dollar as 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 part of the the problem. The, 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 well, not necessarily the the problem, but but certainly a, a, a source of U.S. power in the world. Right. Transactions controlled through the dollar. I mean, you you can flip, look at what's gone on with Russia in the last period of time. Um, 
uh, or, or Iran. I mean, look at the escalating um, uh, sanctions processes that have been have been put in place. It's been the dollar system, um, uh, control over transaction systems, uh, these sorts of things. So, I mean, there is um, there is one strand of of opinion um, on on China's part that is looking at you know how do you how do you construct a system in which you're more you're more resilient um, uh, against the capacity of the United of States the Fed to essentially allies. to yeah, yeah to dictate I mean, yeah you have your swift payments cut off or you um uh, or or um uh, the uh, the, the 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 treasury targets particular uh, Chinese financial institutions or something and the ripple effects of that of the sort that you saw with um, with Russia so there's there's that that's that, that that's gone on but the the dollar is seen as a um, as a source of of, of U.S. Um, power, but it, it also hedges against uncertainty to have more of the renminbi swaps in in, in transactions that are, um, are are being undertaken. Um, I mean, th- there would be an expectation, given the amount of uh, trade that's being conducted, the amount of transactions that are being conducted with the Chinese, that um, the renminbi would become a more uh, a, a more normal and, and, and commonly used currency that, that, that than it has been. Though, I mean, given the way the Chinese Financial system works. It's still um, uh, still uh, uh, still significant capital controls. Um, it's it, it's not a liquid system at the moment. So it's going to be a long long time before the the, the renminbi is actually able to achieve the sort of status that um, some on the Chinese um, side might be looking for. But it's it's mixed motivations and normal economic dynamics that are underpinning it. I'm also just curious on um, a question of how the Communist Party, which has Know, history of communism. It's moved on to effectively controlling capital. Also, the name of communism. Also, in the it. name, yeah, the nomenclature, <laughs> right? And so, how does it pull off that trick of basically sustaining a structure built for a different economic system and then controlling one? <coughs> Islam and Pakistan army. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I want to hear the Chinese equivalent of that. How does it, you know, sort of uh, phrase this? I mean, there there isn't really an attempt to reconcile it particularly seriously through Marxist theory. That's right. the Islam and Pakistan army. Like they've stopped trying, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, 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 there are plenty of people. You know, there are still significant departments of Marxism in in in, in Chinese institutes and, and, and universities, um, and there's there's some kind of backdrop of, of of language that you could actually pull back to to any of this. But I mean, this is why the nationalism piece has been so important. It's not really a story about um, uh, that 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 is a transcendent uh, story of the sort that communism. Um, was um, uh, it's 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 become and and it's it's the fact that you know you, you look at Mao's campaign against Confucius for instance Confucius has been reclaimed and has become you know part of the national story um, it's uh, I mean of course communism in in, in China was um, always had heavy indigenous roots Mao spent his time reading the Chinese classics he his, his knowledge of of Marx was um, extremely weak. Um, uh, so there's always, it's always been indigenized, um, and it's always had a strong sort of national uh, component to it. But now that dimension of it has really become uh, the, the the dominant element. But you 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 are seeing under under Xi Jinping, and what you have to remember around Xi Jinping, a lot of the people who have come back 
into positions of, of power. They're the the young, they're the sons and daughters and grandchildren um, of the the Communist Party elders and things. The, these are the sort of second generation Reds um, in China. It's the sort of um, Communist Party aristocracy that's come back to take power again after a long period of time in which um, the, they, they, they hadn't really controlled the system in the way that they uh, they, they do now. And, and a lot of the, the, for instance, the anti-corruption campaign, which is taking place on an absolutely enormous scale in China, um, is partly about going back to the sort of roots of being a good communist, um, which are not necessarily about the underlying political and economic theories, um, and more about sort of habits of behavior and ethics. Um, of, so of like a, a values-based appeal as opposed to an efficiency-based appeal for, for, for yeah, anti-corruption. Yeah, and, and it's, 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 it's not really, it, it's not a strong ideological work? case. Um, it, it, it's very hard to see the the, the party itself um, being able to... Purge itself uh, of corruption. Oh, I mean, the, the corruption piece of it, I mean, there, th- this has been a... This has been an extremely potent campaign. No one saw it coming in the first place. Everyone was caught on the back foot. This was a surprise to the people who had put Xi Jinping um, in, in in place. Um, and then people have been surprised at the, the, the depth and um, the sustained nature of it. He's gone uh, after... It, Former Politburo members like Zhou Yongkang, um, he's gone through the military and taken out some very senior figures um, there. He's gone through the intelligence services, a whole series of sectors that you might have thought of um, as untouchable. Immune, yeah. Um, uh, the, the, no one has been entirely immune. And the, and, and the sense with what's been done is every, anyone is vulnerable to, uh, to, to, to this. And people have changed their behavior. Um, so just a, another question, which is about Xinjiang if that's how it's pronounced, the mm. province, mm. and Uyghurs, and, you know, sort of its own domestic thing, uh, you know, that it's got a significant Muslim population, and and maybe, you know, that they're not as lucky this time, like, you know, the Tibetans, uh, <laughs> you know, they wouldn't normally do some of the... So, so what's... How, how far is that? Is that something that can be controlled? Because they've got they've gone to some pretty extreme lengths, like banning fasting, yeah. public displays of you know uh, your uh, religiosity and all that. So, how far is that a problem? Well, I mean, there's there's been almost a, there's been a sort of militarization or a remilitarization um, of of Xinjiang in the last period of, of time. I mean, basically, I mean, Xinjiang has been a relatively fast-growing province in the last period of time. It's double-digit growth levels. Um, uh, and I think there, there were a, a number of people in the in the Uyghur growing middle <coughs> class that were, to some extent, willing to accommodate themselves to uh, some of the opportunities that were, were on offer um, in China. Uh, or and you actually also had a period of time from the late 90s to about 2008, in which there were really no terrorist attacks on a significant scale taking place. Um, periods since 2008, particularly after the huge intercommunal riots in 2009 between the Han Chinese and the Uyghurs in, in Urumqi, have really <coughs> heightened um, tensions in Xinjiang, um, and you've had a significant escalation of incidents uh, in Xinjiang and uh, attacks in other parts of of, of, of China um, and as a result there's been a very significant expansion in, in, in the military um, presence and security services presence um, in Xinjiang and some more of these a reversion to some of the more repressive measures that, that were put in place before because there is a fear of 
religiosity and um, uh, on, on the part of the, the, the Chinese state. There's a, there's a discomfort um, with it. But then, I mean, of course, you do have... So you have the, the, the Uyghur population in, in, in Xinjiang. You also have uh, Hui Muslims in, in other parts of China that have, have not really been affected by, by these measures. I mean, if you look at where can you establish... Uh, where, where, where can you establish mosques? How, what level of uh, monitoring of activities um, is there? In Xinjiang, it's been very intense. If you look in other parts of the country, uh, Muslims in uh, some of the, 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 the north of the country, uh, in the southwest and, and other places, um, you haven't had this sort of um, uh, uh, sense of threat. And it's a threat that is, is not necessarily just about religion. It's been about separatism on um, on, on the part of weaknesses. Well, that's that's uh, that's really interesting you say because that's always how I've understood it. I mean, I think that there's a lot of folks that would like Pakistanis to get agitated about Chinese treatment of Muslims. <coughs> but the problem with the Uyghurs isn't, uh, isn't that they're Muslim necessarily. I mean, that may complicate matters, but the problem is that they're Uyghurs, not that they're Muslims. Is that... Uh, I mean, is that close to being accurate in your view? There's been an intertwining in uh, the in in China in the <coughs> minds of the people who are running policy on this of uh, independence uh, seeking uh, seeking autonomy. Uh, and then, oh look, they happen to be Muslims. Those same guys have rammed planes into the twin towers. Or you know, uh, well, I mean, you, the, the, it was actually at the beginning of the '90s that you got this. Sure. Shift. Um, so, I mean, previously what you'd had, I mean, you, you had a period of time in, in, in Xinjiang where the support for uh, separatist movements and, and things was coming from uh, the KGB. Okay. Um, through, mean, through Uzbekistan. Uh, through well, Tahrir Islamov. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you, had, you had some access, but I mean, really until the fall of the Soviet Union, you don't get the full opening up of influence to Central Asia because you, know, you don't have independent Central Asian states. Um, so sure, but by the mid to late 90s, you had Chechens like sort of as, you know, Chechen sort of terrorist groups or rebels or whatever you want to call them interacting and and one of the places where these interactions were happening was was sort of Taliban Afghanistan. Yes. And 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 that's where you had maybe potentially Uyghurs and Uzbeks. I mean, there was a there was a lot going on at that time. And I, you know, so you had you had the fall of the Soviet Union. You had all the fears about the the new Central Asian states, and that there'd be a push for independence on the part of Xinjiang that kind of um, came back then. Um, and then you had a sort of. Um, Islamicization of some of the independence movements that were there at the beginning, which of the were 90s. which were originally maybe linguistic or ethnic. Yeah, but, Turkic yeah. people. It was yeah. Turkic. Yeah. It was um, uh, nationalistic. Yeah. It was even uh, even kind of leftist at, at, at a certain point as well. Um, as was that was that in Kyrg the, the Kyrgyz? And and so I mean, first of all, and then in the immediate aftermath of the fall of the Soviet Union, you had because uh, I mean you have large Uyghur populations in Central Asia. Exactly. I mean, yeah. All, it, they've looked to Central Asia. They've looked to Turkey. That's been <laughs> those have been the reference points. Um, and the religious element kind of came along much later in the in, in the process, really. And then in another the late gift 90s, of uh, another gift of uh, of Bin Laden, essentially. I mean that. Well, I mean, then you get the, the point in the late 90s in which some of the actual Uyghur militant groups um, uh, were uh, had training camps in uh, in Afghanistan and um, uh, under the Taliban and, and, and this sort of thing was going on. But the link between that and what's actually been going on in Xinjiang has, of, has often been quite thin. I mean, the, the tensions and the issues that have really been in, in play 
uh, in Xinjiang have been uh, kind of normal but long-running tensions between the Uyghur population, the Han population, and the Chinese state. It's not necessarily uh, being uh, religious in, in in essence. It's. Uh, I think we could sit here for for days because we haven't. I mean, there's a number of questions I have about countries like Indonesia and Australia. Australia in particular, because there's this huge diaspora population in Australia. Maybe no other country has the kind of maritime... I mean, Indonesia would be the only other one that has the kind of maritime interests that uh, that Australia has concurrent with its deep, long-term strategic partnership with the United States. Hmm. I mean, I think India, in a sense, is kind of a late... Uh, late entrant and, and a bit of a Johnny come lately to the whole sort of strategic equation in the Indo-Pacific. Yeah. I think it's much more Vietnam, Indonesia. I don't really think a country like Malaysia or Thailand are as influential, but certainly Australia that will help shape to some extent. It, it, like, I guess the question is, and again, we shouldn't be asking questions because we do have to wrap up, but among the questions that gets left unanswered for me from this conversation but obviously a starting point for our next conversation is how do you see the South China Sea situation resolving itself? <coughs> There's going to be a lot more of the South China Sea in 20-30 years. As in because of uh, because of because of the water level increasing? Yeah, yeah. There's more to go around. You know that uh, you know if I think that with President Donald Trump you know coming into power in the U.S., the evidence for climate change is really going to be contested. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know if that, that formulation is necessarily accurate. I mean, if President Trump comes well, in, climate change is going to stop. People like, dude, chill it for a while. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be so much more of this that you don't know what to do with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe that's the carrot. But anyhow, thank you so much. I've learned a lot. It's been... You've been incredibly clear, and we're really grateful that you've come, and uh, it's been absolutely wonderful. I think most people will enjoy it, and I sort of agree. Initially, I wanted to talk a lot about CPEC, but I, but I agree. Understanding China uh, before CPEC is mm. probably more important. So, um, we'll be back soon, and apologies to everyone who's been waiting uh, for so long and you know we're uh, back on track doing a regular podcasts from now on and thank you once again it's been absolutely wonderful well, thanks so much for having me thank you for joining us Andrew we hope to have you back on very soon uh, ladies and gentlemen thanks for listening as always this is uh, Musharraf Zadi signing out of Out of Pakistan and goodbye from Fasizak <laughs>